This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, Stephen Willing shares the 10 myths of the sexual revolution. Dr. Willing is board certified in diagnostic radiology and neuroradiology. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2022 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Willing shares how current scientific evidence supports the biblical paradigm for sexuality. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Willing. I'm a semi-retired academic neuroradiologist. Uh, Retired six years ago, but I'm still working at Children's Hospital downtown where I left about an hour ago. the only reason I won't, anything you want to know about me, you can read the bio in the program. The, the only thing that's relevant is as a neuroradiologist, that kind of makes me a neuroscientist. So when we start talking about brain issues, that is one area where I feel I'm somewhat qualified. So we'll, we'll go on right ahead. Welcome, welcome to the top 10 myths. I generally want to thank you for coming to my talk today. I have a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to make like Leah Thomas and just jump right in. Let me start with one caveat. Every item on this list is a complicated subject in and of itself. It's not, today's talk isn't going to make you an expert, but it's enough to get the gist. In most cases, I'll point you to references where you can explore the individual subject in much greater depth. My primary purpose here is to defend and uphold biblical sexuality before an audience of believers. It won't be enough to convince an overwhelming, to overwhelm a committed ideologue. But to anyone reasonably open-minded on the subject, I think I can deliver a pretty reasonable case. So what do I mean by sexual revolution? In its essence, the negation of God's design for marriage, sex, and children. Within the biblical paradigm, which has been reflected in almost all civilizations throughout history, we begin with marriage as a central institution. So outer circle here, marriage. Sex takes place only within marriage and children occur only as a result of sex within, this, within marriage. Fix this image in your mind. Marriage is at the top of the hierarchy. This seemed to work well for many thousands of years, and any deviation from this paradigm led to predictably bad consequences. If you've read Carl Truman, you know that there's a long and distinguished philosophical history behind contemporary notions of sexuality. The actual expression sexual revolution was coined by Wilhelm Reich, Reich was a successor to Freud, who ran his clinic in Vienna throughout the 1920s. 
1939, Reich immigrated to New York to join the New School for Social Research. Throughout his career, Reich advanced a number of very strange ideas, particularly pertaining to human sexuality. If you read up on him, you might find it quite entertaining, but I don't have time this afternoon. Because of his extravagant health claims and disturbing connections with sexual abuse, Reich was pursued by the FDA and eventually died in prison. In his final years, he became increasingly delusional, if not overtly psychotic. Let me just summarize by saying none of Reich's ideas survive in modern mainstream science. What we think of as the sexual revolution really took off in the 1960s, and I would argue that popular culture is a much more potent driving force than delusional Austrian psychotherapists. Its ultimate source, of course, is the father of lies. At its heart, it is the rejection of Judeo-Christian sexual morality. Now, let me elaborate on that. The sexual revolution severed traditional relationships between sex, marriage, and children. We could say it began with rupturing the tie between sex and children, enabled by the pill in the 1960s. This was made possible by advancing technology and the Griswold decision in the US Supreme Court. What this meant was that people could engage in intercourse without worrying about the natural consequence, dramatically lowering what we call the cost of sex, especially for women, but for men too. And if contraception did fail or was just too inconvenient, then you had abortion. At its peak, that was about one and a half million a year just in the US. It's much lower now, but over 85% are among unmarried women. Next came the separation of sex from marriage, driven by pop culture as well as shoddy scholarship, claiming that non-marital sex was healthy, normal, and free of consequence. Finally came the rupture between marriage and children. Illegitimacy is not the only cause. We mustn't overlook divorce, which rose rapidly in the late 20th century with a nationwide move towards no-fault divorce and increasing social acceptance. There's another side to stage one. Technology has not only made it possible to have sex without children, it's made it possible to have children without sex. See now there at the bottom there. So instead of marriage, sex is at the top of the hierarchy. Some sexual relationships lead to or begin with marriage, but most do not. Children are usually within marriage, but often outside of marriage, and thanks to the fertility industry, don't even require sex. If you've read Brave New World, written 90 years ago, Huxley foretold all three stages. In his future dystopia, marriage is eliminated, and the break between sex and children is absolute. In that context, you might find this quote from Huxley revealing, for myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. So Huxley was pretty transparent about his motivations. But even in writing the book, he wasn't able to put lipstick on that pig. His imaginary future was a dystopia. This impacts the church in more ways than you might think. There's a plausible argument that the myths of the sexual revolution have been a primary tool of Satan to weaken the church. This chart from Pew Research shows what most of you already know. In the last 10 years, the percentage of Americans who identify as born again is declining, even though they constitute a higher proportion of the declining Protestant population. That's the middle row on the left. One fact I find especially distressing highlighted on top is that out of the entire US population, white evangelical Protestant, which looks like most of the people in this room, are the oldest religious group with a median age of 56. 
I see this firsthand every Sunday morning in my home congregation, and when I look out on all the gray and balding heads, fewer in number than 30 years ago, how are things going to look in another 30 years if most of us are going to be gone? Everybody, I'm sure, has an explanation. You know it's possible that there's more than one. One thing I'd humbly suggest is that continuing to do what we've been doing may not be the best strategy. So this afternoon, I'd like to toss out something that may not be on your radar, but perhaps should be. Let me share with you three observations from three respected sources and see whether they don't fit together. First, Dave Kinneman of Barna Research. In their book from 2011, he reported on a large-scale study of young people who grew up in the church. 59% of millennials who grew up in the church have dropped out at some point. Only 2 in 10 believe it is important. The dropout problem is, at its core, a faith development problem. To use religious language, it's a disciple-making problem. Ask yourselves, are we failing the disciple-making process? Second, Mark Regneris. Mark is a Christian professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin and an eminent researcher who's had four books published by the Oxford University Press. You've probably heard of Oxford. He spent years studying the sexual behavior of people both inside and outside the church, culminating in his 2017 book called Cheap Sex, The Transformation of Men, Marriage, and Monogamy. In an op-ed for the Washington Post, Regneris asserted, it's not science that's secularizing Americans, it's sex. Ask yourselves, is there a connection between non-marital sex and declining religious engagement? As we saw a moment ago, Huxley was pretty transparent about that. Finally, somebody pretty well known here in the PCA. In an issue of Table Talk just a couple of years before he died, R.C. laid out the purpose of apologetics. First, to provide an answer to the critics of the Christian faith. Second, to tear down the intellectual idols of our culture. But third, and what he said was the most valuable aim of apologetics, is to encourage the saints and to shore up the church. That needs to be emphasized. The primary purpose of apologetics is not to browbeat atheists or debate gender activists. It's to shore up the church. And we all know it needs shoring up. So that's why I'm taking this time to gay. Kinneman said we're failing at discipleship. Regneris pointed the spotlight on sex. Sproul pointed to one ministry tool we've been neglecting. Now, some Christians are skeptical of science in general, usually the ones who don't know much about it. For reasons we don't need to go into, the relationship between science and faith can be complicated. The sexual revolutions, though, confidently claim that science is on their side. But not only is science not on their side, it increasingly affirms the biblical view of human sexuality as the optimal pathway to human flourishing. So I'm going to present this as a top 10 myth. This isn't a Letterman kind of list. They're not organized in priority, but more by topic. I will offer my opinion as to which one I think is the worst, and it may not be what you expect. So let's proceed to the first myth. Gender is a social construct. What does that mean? This is a claim that there are no intrinsic differences between men and women other than the physical ones, that everything pertaining to gender norms and roles is dictated by society. The idea emerged during what we call second wave feminism. First wave feminism was a movement starting in the late 1700s advancing the empowerment of women and legal equality. Second wave feminism came along in the mid 20th century and one of its more noteworthy proponents was Simone de Beauvoir, the girlfriend of existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. Simone is well known for declaring, on ne n'est pas femme, on la devient, which translates, we are not born women, we become one. 
She was denying that anything relating to femininity was biological or present at birth. You might note that this flatly contradicts the axioms of contemporary transgenderism, which define one's gender according to those same stereotypes. Now, in the mid-20th century, that might have been a workable hypothesis, even if it smelled a bit fishy. But in the later 20th century, neuroscience research exploded. The 1990s were designated the decade of the brain by the NIH. And that research found that there are concrete, persistent, and pervasive differences between male and female cognition. Male children really are more aggressive, more systems-oriented, and more inclined towards risk-taking female children really are more empathetic, less aggressive, and risk-averse. The complete risk list is much, much longer. But these are averages. There's no dividing wall that reliably separates one from the other, but a lot of overlap. Probably the one area where there's the least overlap is sex drive, where the difference between men and women is pretty large and persistent. But far from being culturally determined, these differences begin in utero and are already firmly established at birth. Even in the developing embryo, circulating testosterone causes male and female brains to develop differently, not in a way that we can see structurally, like on an MRI, but in the way that they are wired. If you want a good, thorough read on this topic, I highly recommend Why Gender Matters by Leonard Sachs here, now in a second edition. But this doesn't completely contradict De Beauvoir. It's not an either-or. Some gender roles and behaviors, even how people dress, are culturally influenced. Virtually all modern Bible scholars agree that Paul's extended riff on head coverings speaks to a social construct, not a moral concern. This cuts both ways. If in olden days they were pressured to act more like women, now there's a lot of cultural pressure to make women act more like men. How is that any better? I know some people bristle at that phrase, but you could pretty much say that the science on this score is settled. The January 2017 issue of the Journal of Neuroscience Research was completely devoted to articles reviewing the neuroscientific evidence of innate male-female differences. In his introduction, journal editor Larry Cahill wrote, the notion that sex matters fundamentally, powerfully, and pervasively for all of neuroscience, not just for reproduction, is an idea whose time has indeed come. Well, we might say that idea came thousands of years ago, but better late than never, right? Is this common knowledge? Of course not. Most of the media and education establishments are still living in the 70s. Well, myth number 10 is pretty easy to knock off, so let's forge ahead. Number nine in my countdown, intercourse between consenting adults is harmless. So according to the prevailing sexual narrative, it's morally neutral, harmless, possibly even healthy. The only constraint is mutual consent. This idea really took off in the 60s and has become the official position of the political left and most of the entertainment industry. In TV and movies, most romantic relationships end up in bed. I'm sure you've noticed. Apart from a few rare exceptions, like fatal attractions, when are there ever any negative consequences? Well, let's do a reality check. Well, consequence number one should be pretty obvious. No matter what they say, contraception is far from 100% successful even if it's attempted. Occasionally, intercourse still results in God's intended outcome. Number two, sexually transmitted diseases. This April, the CDC reported that 2020 was a record year for gonorrhea and syphilis, even in the middle of a COVID lockdown. Even the CDC recommends limiting the number of sexual partners, make that one or zero, and STDs cease to be an issue. 
Number three, the emotional consequences. There's a complex, unavoidable neurochemical response to sexual intercourse that impacts how one feels and how one behaves in the future. Intercourse results in a dopamine hit, which, as you know, activates the brain's reward centers. Whatever you do that releases dopamine, your brain wants to keep doing more of it. That's true for gambling, illicit drugs, birdieing on the 18th hole, or having sex. <laughs> sex also stimulates the production of oxytocin. This is known as the cuddle hormone, and it's part of God's design to facilitate emotional bonding between father and mother or mother and child. Vasopressin has a similar effect in men. The brain doesn't differentiate between a lifelong monogamous partnership and a one-night stand, at least not initially. However, the brain is also highly malleable. It learns and adapts. So over enough time, it adapts to whatever lifestyle you pursue. This can become problematic if someone later decides to enter a monogamous relationship after years of promiscuity. It's like trying to make a sudden course correction on an ocean liner. Joe McElhaney has compiled an excellent review of the neuroscience on this subject here on your right. Lastly, there are the social consequences. Well, if one of the partners happens to be married to someone else, obviously it's a problem. How about if they're cohabiting, just going steady? An awful lot of conflict can be connected to something that's supposed to be harmless. As we continue our countdown, we come to myth number eight. Marriage is just a piece of paper. This works like an ace of spades for men in cohabiting relationships who want to justify not marrying their partner. Most women, on the other hand, are not quite so thrilled with this line. But suppose for a minute it's true. Are there really no differences between married couples and cohabiting couples? Well, as you may suspect, the data shows otherwise. If it didn't, I wouldn't have it on my list. Here's an excellent review from Linda Waite and Maggie Gallagher. It was written around the turn of the millennium, so it's really over 20 years old, but the data has really held up and continues to strengthen. Linda Waite was a social science researcher. She studied marriage over many decades. Even by then, there was a wealth of data on the difference between cohabiting relationships and marriage. Couples who were married exhibited higher levels of commitment to one another, both in their personal lives and specifically in the area of sex. They were more focused on the life of their partner and more concerned with their partner's interest. People who were married, especially women, were safer and at lower risk of abuse or violent death. This also extends to death from illness. Men who are married can expect a significantly greater life expectancy. And of course, married couples were consistently more financially secure. On the other hand, cohabiting partners exhibited much lower levels of commitment toward one another. The relationships were far less stable and of much shorter duration. Partners in a cohabiting relationship are less dependent upon the other person and less interested in their partner's life. In addition to all that, they are also inherently more violent with greater risk of domestic abuse. So it turns out that cohabitation is substantially inferior to marriage across a wide range of parameters. It's a whole lot more than a piece of paper. Throughout history, most people understood that. In position seven, we have the sexual revolution was a boon for women. Well, how do they justify this? Well, the claim is that it enabled women to pursue rich lives and fulfilling careers without the burdens of domestic responsibility and early motherhood. Even better, women were free to have sex whenever and with whomever they choose, just like men. Of course, I'm being sarcastic. There's little evidence that's what women want, but I can't speak for them. 
Of course, to advance this argument, they must assume that financial and legal equality with men was part and parcel of the sexual revolution, but that is a complete equivocation fallacy. There was never a moral argument against legal equality for women, and support for this principle was widespread across Western society. This is what we classify under the term first-wave feminism. The sexual revolution fell under the category of second-wave feminism, and it was not a natural progression, but a paradigm shift. As a consequence of the sexual revolution, young women, young women today are marrying older and less likely to ever be married. With a decreased chance of marriage ever, there is a decreased chance of motherhood. Simply delaying the age of marriage leads to decreased fertility and reduced family size. So while women are doing much better in measures like sports or business or college graduation rates, happiness has not come as part of the package. In fact, researchers have documented a decline in women's happiness. In 2009, the American Economic Journal published a report titled The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness by Stephenson, Betsy, and Wolfers. They documented that over a span of 35 years, women's happiness declined both in absolute terms and relative to men throughout the industrialized world. Well, why would they call it a paradox? Because everyone took it for granted that there was no downside to the sexual revolution and that happiness derived from careers, money, and power. As a result, today's women are more likely to be depressed, more likely to experience anxiety, and less satisfied with their life situations. Let's visualize this this data in a couple of charts. In this graphic from the Institute for Family Studies, we see that the percentage of 25 to 50-year-olds who have never been married in the dark blue on the bottom has risen from 9% in 1970 to a whopping 35% today. That's never married. The number currently married, green, has dropped from nearly 90% to barely over 50%. What this chart doesn't show is that there's a strong economic component to this. The percentage of high-income adults who've never married is over 40%. Percentage of low-income adults who've never married is over 40%. There are many aspects to this. Mark Regneris has, I think, the best grasp of what's going on. In his work, he describes how while sex has become cheap, marriage is now very expensive. When he says marriage has become expensive, he means not just economically, but in the expectations of society and of potential partners. Because women are marrying later and less likely to ever be married, they are having fewer children than they would like. You can see in this chart based on data from the General Social Survey that there's a significant gap, the gap here in gray, between the number of children women say they want to have in the top line and the number of children they probably will have in the bottom line. In fact, the gap is presently the highest it has been in 40 years. Even by the beginning of this timeline, the fertility rate was already low. This chart doesn't show the dramatic plunge in fertility from 1960 to 1975 after abortion and the pill became widely available. For much of the last 40 years, birth rates have been below the replacement levels. It wasn't just abortion and the pill. Along with the sexual revolution came declining marriage rates and a culturally sanctioned narcissism that encourages a perpetual adolescence that's incompatible with parenthood. Now, people can believe whatever they want, but the reality is that having children is a pretty high priority for most women and pretty foundational to their long-term happiness. Not all of them realize it, and it need not be true for all women. 
So just based on this brief overview, we can see that the sexual revolution hasn't exactly been wine and roses for women in Western society. But that's just half the story. Men aren't doing so great either, but that's another story for another day. Well, I'm not even halfway through, but already some of the foundational assumptions behind the sexual revolution don't seem to be holding up that well. Let's move to number six in our countdown. Chastity and monogamy are oppressive. If you guess that this had shades of Sigmund Freud, you'd be guessing correctly. They say when your only tool is a hammer, the whole world is a nail. For Sigmund Freud, sex was his hammer. He attributed all kinds of psychiatric disorders, real and imagined, to what he called repressed sexuality. As you might know, although Freud had some good insights into the human subconscious, most of his work was complete bunk. He really didn't do research so much as he simply made things up. And his theories have not held up well in the past 50 years. Well, people don't really read Freud, but they do watch TV and go to movies. And inevitably, the narrative follows the same pattern. Characters committed to chastity or monogamy are repressed, judgmental, boring, and generally dysfunctional. Or they're hypocrites and closet libertines. Not that that hasn't happened, of course. Producers and writers love to pretend that sex is harmless and healthy and the sex drive should never be suppressed. I think I've already given a few good reasons why maybe it ought to be suppressed. And there are a lot more coming up. But let's take that myth as a hypothesis and go with it. What are all the alternatives to chastity and monogamy? Well, basically, you're left with free, unconstrained sex and the elimination of marriage. It's not as if it hasn't been tried before. It was partially operational in Imperial Rome, at least if you were a member of the male, male member of the ruling class. But in the immediate aftermath of the Russian Revolution, radicals sought to abolish marriage and the nuclear family and set out to do exactly that. There was a resulting explosion in sexually transmitted diseases, abortion, and rape. The experiment was a disaster and was quickly brought to a halt. But when marriage and monogamy are really examined, I think they turn out pretty well. The research consistently shows that married people are happier, healthier, and even enjoy better sex lives. Social groups with a high percentage of married couples and intact nuclear families are more stable with lower crime rates, higher employment, and greater prosperity. On the right-hand side of this screen, I'm showing From Shame to Sin by Kyle Harper. This book was referenced in the PCA committee report last year. Harper, a professor of classics at the University of Oklahoma, described how things worked in first century Rome. Male aristocrats ruled the roost. Upper-class women had some property rights. Any women further down, which was most of them, had no rights, including the right not to be raped by their owners or another powerful male, even if they were married to somebody else. Christianity didn't impose the patriarchy. Christianity invaded the patriarchy and overturned it. The only losers in the biblical arrangement are male sexual predators. So let's go on and talk about sexual predators. We are not responsible for sexual predators. The activists of the sexual revolution don't deny that they exist. They simply argue that their ideology is not to blame. So how do they explain their existence? Well, I watched a documentary on the Harvey Weinstein scandal. It was really pretty good up until the end. But then they asked about solutions, and it seemed like everybody's answer was to get more women producers in Hollywood. It was just a matter of unfair power distribution, right? Well, I don't have any problem with having more female producers in Hollywood, but there still would be male producers, so you wouldn't really be eliminating the problem. 
Also, how does that help the 99% of victims who are not wealthy, talented, and privileged starlets? How does it help the waitresses and hotel maids? On top of all that, their victims weren't always female. Anyone here heard of Kevin Spacey? Besides the issue of power, they bring up the matter of consent. Well, of course, consent's pretty important, but it's not exactly a Boolean quantity, meaning, meaning either one or zero. There are degrees of consent and situations in which it seems very ambiguous or contingent, or one or both partners is under the influence of mind-altering substances. And then, of course, there's that perennial bete noir, what leftists term toxic masculinity. Well, they actually have a point there, but their error lies in equating toxic masculinity with traditional masculinity. This is another equivocation fallacy. Only a lunatic would see any connection between raping women and declining to ordain them. But let's keep this toxic masculinity on the table for a moment. So you all know about the Me Too movement. You heard about the sex abuse scandals from the Boy Scouts and the Roman Catholic Church and even recently the Southern Baptists. The data shows that there was actually shows there was a spike in abuse cases during the 70s and 80s. Well, what's significant about the 70s and 80s? These were the decades immediately following the sexual revolution. But if you really want to know what causes sexual predators, you need to study the predators. Well, I have good news for you. That's been done. In 1996, Neil Malamuth developed what he called the confluence model of sexual predator formation. He initially identified two elements in their development. The first was misogyny, a general contempt toward women. So yeah, toxic masculinity, it does exist, and it's nothing we should be defensive about. Let's just be clear about what it is and isn't. The second was casual sexual orientation. Casual sexual orientation has nothing to do with your preference of partner. It describes one's attitude towards sex itself, whether it is deep and meaningful and only within a loving, committed relationship or whether it's trivial and something to be gratified whenever the opportunity arises. In other words, the exact opposite of a biblical position. Well, it turns out that both of these are strongly correlated with the formation of sexual predators. It took quite some time for the third pillar to be identified, but in the last decade, research has conclusively demonstrated that pornography is another major contributor to the development of sexual predators, which takes us down to number four in our countdown. Pornography doesn't hurt anyone. In the last few decades, pornography has become ubiquitous, and that's largely because of the internet. Conservatives have always opposed pornography because of the moral implications and often tried to pass or preserve legislation, keeping it out of the marketplace. Unfortunately, this continued to be struck down by courts on the basis of First Amendment arguments. Intuitively, though, we figured out it really can't be that good for you, but it proved to be really hard showing that there was a direct connection between pornography and sexual misconduct. This argument has been going on for a long time, but in the last 10 years, the evidence for the danger of pornography has become overwhelming. It might be that the early studies of pornography didn't show that much of an impact, because by current standards, it was really pretty tame. The Playboy of 50 years ago has very little connection to the hardcore sort of stuff that is readily available today to your average 10-year-old with a smartphone. And I hope your 10-year-olds don't have smartphones. Today we know a lot more about pornography and what we know is damning. I've already mentioned some of the neurobiology behind sex and everything that I said about sex applies to pornography. You get the same dopamine effects and that which generates dopamine can lead to addiction. There's a strong link between pornography consumption and male impotence. 
Like any other addictions, it often develops that higher and higher levels of stimulation are needed to achieve the same effect. Unfortunately for some of these people, real human females can't compete with the intensity of arousal they get from the pornography they consume. Clearly, this is going to have an impact on relationships, especially if the consumer of pornography is married or in a long-term romantic partnership. In the area of sexual economics, this is the cheapest sex of all. If they can gratify their sex drive this way, some men needn't expend the effort to court a woman. Some, they simply drop out of the marriage market altogether, skewing the odds even further against women who are already disadvantaged in that arena. From its earliest days, the pornography in, in, uh, industry was based upon exploitation and abuse of vulnerable women, and today it has only grown worse. But building upon the prior myth, it's now firmly established that pornography has a causal connection to the formation of sexual predators. There's a large body of research showing that young people exposed to pornography has, have more lifetime sexual partners, mix alcohol and drugs with sex, engage in riskier sex, and are more likely to be sex offenders. Here's a book and a website where you can access a wealth of scientific data on the matter. People are beginning to clue in Here's a Saturday essay from the London Times just two weeks ago. Women have been betrayed by a culture of porn gone wild. Here's a screenshot from the website yourbrainonporn.com. It looks like they have a lot of data, but what you really see here is just a table of contents. So after several decades of research, we now know that pornography is bad for you. Who would have thought it? <laughs> As I said, these aren't raked in order, but to me, this is the worst. The children will be fine. Well, if I wanted to be snarky, I could add the qualifier, those children who survive to birth, but we don't want to be snarky now, do we? Throughout the decades following the sexual revolution, many of us expressed concern about the impact upon children. The continued refrain was that children are resilient. In fact, they will be just fine. Well, they're not fine. Now, there are a lot of constituencies that really want this to be true. People who are divorcing or wanted to make it easier didn't want to be feel, be, feel burdened with guilt over its effects upon children. Another large category consisted of those who wanted to destigmatize unmarried childbearing. Of course, that's always a delicate situation, and while we don't want to make matters worse with our rhetoric, denying the evident harm serves no one. You might think that in this department, we're just following the lead of our sophisticated European allies, but that's unfortunately not the case. Just like the US has much more liberal laws pertaining to abortion and divorce, we lead the world in the number of children who live without both parents. That's really not something where you want to be number one. Let's take a look at the impact. Early last year, Katie Foss and Stacey Manning came out with this outstanding piece of work. Katie has a long history as a children's rights advocate. She also has a personal connection as her parents divorced and her mother subsequently entered into a same-sex relationship. With the sexual revolution, everything is about gratifying the selfish desires and fantasies of adults. Children are treated as commodities. Both divorce and extramarital pregnancy result in children deprived of one or the other parent. Sometimes that's tragic and unavoidable but there's a sizable contingent of activists who see nothing wrong with those institutions. In so doing, they ignore a vast spectrum of research showing how hurtful they are to children. Kids raised without a father are at increased risk of dropping out of school, behavioral disorders, mental disorders, incarceration, poverty, 
physical and sexual abuse, early pregnancy, and almost every other measure of social pathology. Kids raised without a mother don't fare all that well either, but it is much less common. But now, thanks to technology, we have an increasing population of kids who are conceived outside of sex by either sperm donation, egg donation, embryo donation, or surrogate pregnancy. This leads to a population of children who are permanently estranged from their genetic parents, and in the case of surrogacy, even their birth mother. The safest place in the world for any child is to be at home with his or her biological parents. Any deviation from this in any direction raises the likelihood of physical and even sexual abuse. The most dangerous situation is when a child shares the household with an unrelated adult male. In one series, the risk of abuse was actually 50 times higher. Both divorce and extramarital pregnancy lead to deprivation of either a mother or father. Katie Foss made an excellent point in the book. She objects to the use of the word parenting because it consists really of two separate and irreplaceable components, mothering and fathering, and kids need both. But it gets worse. In same-sex partnerships, that's not a bug but a feature. I would gather that most of you have had mothers and fathers, though you might not have known them or lived with them throughout your upbringing. But if you were lucky enough to grow up with both parents, which one would you have given up for a duplicate of the other? Would you have given up your father for a second mother? Would you give up your mother for a second father? Do you seriously believe they were interchangeable? People truly do believe this, but it's despite all the evidence and the universal sum of human experience. The children are not fine, and the sexual revolution is to blame. Moving down to number two, there is no meaningful difference between homosexuality and heterosexuality. Now, this is a really sensitive subject, and for better or worse, LGBTQ issues have consumed most of the oxygen over the last 30 years. What do we mean here? We mean the narrative that they're socially, biologically, and morally equivalent, like height, or hair color, or taste in music even something to be celebrated, like here. Now, it's hard to know how many people seriously believe this, probably a lot. I think it's fair to say that it's a foundational assumption in Western pop culture. Considering that homosexuals are regularly portrayed as helpless and powerless victims, and they have at times been really badly treated, there's a lot of sympathy going in their direction. A lot of people really want this to be true. Well, I'm going to pass on the moral judgments. What are the basic differences from a social, medical, and biological standpoint? Well, to be clear, even though we lump them in the same category, there are big differences between male and female homosexuality in the psychology, in plasticity, and in sexual behaviors. Mostly, I'm just going to talk about male homosexuality. So point number one, it's pretty obvious that male homosexuals do not engage in what could be considered healthy physiologic sexual intercourse. The alternative pursued by most is extremely dangerous from a medical standpoint. The rectal wall is much thinner and less elastic, lacks the immune defenses of a woman's vagina, harbors dangerous pathogens, and ends in a sphincter, which is essential to proper functioning but an impediment to misuse. This is one reason why a 2021 report from New Zealand published in the British Medical Journal found that relative to heterosexuals, gay and bisexual men faced a 57-fold increased risk of syphilis, 
or gonorrhea, a 163-fold increased risk of syphilis, and a 348-fold increased risk of HIV-AIDS. But another contributing factor to the much higher rate of sexually transmitted diseases is that gay men have more partners than their heterosexual counterparts. In a 2014 survey from the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture, only 11% of heterosexual men report more than 20 lifetime partners compared to 45% of gay men. So at the top, more than 20 part lifetime partners, homosexual is in the green. If we look at the other end, fewer than 10 lifetime partners, heterosexuals about 74%, homosexuals 34%. Now this doesn't mean that homosexuals have a higher sex drive. In fact, this would be predicted according to the theory of sexual economics advanced by Baumeister and Regneris. While in heterosexual encounters, females act as gatekeepers, in male-to-male relationships, the gatekeeper is eliminated. There's also a strong cultural component. During the AIDS epidemic, levels of promiscuity dropped precipitously, but in recent decades, it has rebounded within the gay population, according to a 2019 paper from the CDC. Another obvious point that deserves emphasis is that same-sex relationships are incapable of bringing new little humans into existence. Yeah, there are workarounds, but this is done for the benefit of adults, certainly not the children. No child should be brought into this world purposely knowing that child won't have either a mother or a father, but it's happening through artificial insemination or surrogacy. Katie Foss discusses this at length and has collected many heartbreaking stories of children raised in these situations. It's well known that within the gay population, both male and female, there are much higher rates of depression, drug, abuse, drug addiction, abuse, and suicide. The simplest explanation would be that it's just a naturally unhealthy state, and these are what we in the medical community would call comorbidities. But there's a competing hypothesis that blames society and those who don't accept it. This is called the minority stress theory, and of course is popular among those who want to deny any basic difference. It's certainly possible that this is a contributing factor, but there's no way it can explain all the difference. And it goes against one of the most consistent principles in human psychology that nothing ever reduces to one simple cause. In nearly all studies, Claims of discrimination are based on self-reporting or the person's perception. More than one researcher has pointed out that male homosexuals, on average, exhibit much higher rates of neuroticism, neurotic, neurosis, as a core straight trait. And this may mean that they are just more likely to interpret routine encounters as discrimination or abuse. Well, why does any of this matter? Because those who refuse to admit any basic difference are forced to come up with alternative explanations for differences that are really quite obvious. So, but let's move on to our final myth. That's just the way God made me. Well, that's really more of a theological statement than a scientific one. The implied claim is if you can somehow attribute your behavior to something inborn rather than a matter of will, then you shouldn't be held morally accountable. Of course, to get there, you have to dismiss 2,000 years of Christian teaching that we're all born with a sin nature, yet still morally accountable, so that really doesn't cut it. It reminds me of an old saying from Alexander Pope, whatever is, is right. Pope didn't believe that. He was satirizing people who acted as though they did. I think it's been pretty convincingly settled that science cannot define morality. This goes back to Hume's law, named after David Hume, which states that you cannot derive an ought from an is. 
for guidance in, on theology and morality, I'll direct everyone to their reference to the right of the screen. <laughs> of course, in the field of medicine, we know that we're born with all sorts of things that are bad for us. While probably well over 50% of illness among American adults is directly related to lifestyle and fully preventable, that still leaves a lot of disease. Tay-Sachs disease is a genetic disorder common among Ashkenazi Jews that attacks the central nervous system. Children born with the infantile form almost never live more than five years, but they're also born that way. Now you could object that Tay-Sachs disease doesn't have any moral or behavioral connotations, and you'd be right. But there's a fairly long list of behavioral disorders with a strong genetic component, including ADHD, Tourette's syndrome, addictions and substance abuse, and schizophrenia. No human behavior or personality trait is exclusively linked to a genetic cause. Everything represents a mixture of nature and nurture. This principle also applies in the area of human sexuality. But since that line has often been used by those seeking the normalization and acceptance of homosexuality, what does the science have to say? Are they really born that way? Well, the jury's out on that one. The official position of the American Psychiatric Association and the American Psychological Association is that the causes of same-sex attraction are unknown but probably multifactorial. Based on twin studies and genome surveys, we can say with confidence that there's no gay gene, and genetics plays a small role at most. Like most human traits, same-sex attraction seems to be a combination of nature and nurture. We find, for example, that it's slightly higher among identical twins, but in the vast majority of twin pairs, if one is gay, the other is not. There's a small birth order effect in that younger male siblings are at slightly increased risk over older ones. But it's also very wrong to say it's a choice. That may have happened in isolated cases, but it must be extremely rare. Now, transgenderism is a whole other story. Up until 2013, a person who believed that they belonged to the other sex was diagnosed as having gender identity disorder. That diagnosis disappeared in the DSM-5, but not because of any scientific breakthrough. It was an accommodation to the political environment. That isn't science. It's sloppy metaphysics. It's scientifically and logically incoherent for a biological male to claim he's ontologically a woman or vice versa. This is because of the effect of sex hormones during fetal development in the early postnatal period. A young boy, even if puberty is blocked, is already two-thirds of the way to mental manhood and can never go back. You remember all those male-female differences I talked about? I only mentioned a handful out of dozens. Most present an early childhood, and puberty is not required. But neurobiology doesn't cancel out human agency. Even among committed materialists, few are willing to go that far. We still have the ability to make choices, and because the brain is a very dynamic and adaptable organ, we have some control over what direction it travels. Golf instructors love the saying that practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. That's quite true of the brain. Every time you indulge in particular thoughts or behaviors, you're forming connections. Keep doing it, and those connections grow stronger. Practice does make permanent. The reverse is also true. That's probably why the Bible has so much to say about keeping our minds pure and focused on righteousness. Paul didn't know any neurobiology, but God invented it. So let's land this plane. Here's my thesis. 
When it comes to sexuality, it is not Christianity that is in conflict with mainstream science. It is the prevailing cultural narrative. These issues are complex. Those opposed to Christian morality can cherry pick data to support their own preferred narrative. And there's no way you can anticipate every objection they might raise. I have written and studied and written a lot about biases and sound thinking and the deceptive use of data and intellectual pride. People believe all sorts of error because they want to. How do I know I'm not succumbing here? Well, let me give you five reasons. Number one, you can look at who is on our side. All major world faiths and even many atheists, all races and many political persuasions. This isn't some quirk of fundamentalist Christianity. Number two, you can look at who is not on our side. Highly motivated players with transparent personal agendas. Don't forget Huxley or Harvey Weinstein. Number three, common sense. We all see the wreckage around us. How much of your counseling ministry is because of all this? Number four, the position I've laid out doesn't postulate any conspiracies, assume motives, or invisible actors. It doesn't depend on cherry picking the evidence or taking quotes out of context. And number five, almost all cognitive biases are self-serving. Nothing is more self-serving than the belief that you can have sex anytime you want with anyone who will. A Christian sexual ethic runs against self-serving biases. My final point, this isn't irreversible. There's far too much pessimism and despair over the trends we've been seeing, but the tides of history come and go. Much of the current discourse among conservative Christians, frankly, borders on clinical paranoia. Sexual activity among young people has diminished significantly since the early 1990s. One reason the child molestation cases peaked in the 80s and early 90s was that there was a public movement among some elites to legitimize what they euphemistically called intergenerational sex. That has been completely delegitimized, even among the liberals. So what can you do with this information when you go home? Well, please, incorporate sexual apologetics into your Christian education, especially for young adults and older youth in an age-appropriate setting. Think about ministering to the victims. Does your church have a ministry to victims of sexual assault? And offer no solace to predators, as we saw revealed in the SBC report. You don't have to become an expert in this subject. Even if you started now, it would take months or years and distract you from other duties. Take advantage of the physicians and nurses in your congregations who already have a firm grasp on science and medicine. Lastly, take advantage of available resources. There are several, there are a lot of bad sources. There are several consistently good sources that I recommend National Review, Breakpoint, New Johnstone Street, or the public discourse. I've taken the time to compile many sources into a seven-lesson curriculum on sexual apologetics that I gave at Briarwood this spring, and I've uploaded to my website at swilling.com. It's always free. Finally, we need to balance confidence with humility. We have no grounds for being smug about this. I've expended a lot of energy dealing with misrepresentation or outright denial of science among Christians and conservatives, especially during COVID. We just tend to err in different directions. We have much reason to be humble, though the biggest reason is that God commands it. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. 
Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.